All right, well, welcome to Grace Bible Church. We really are excited to be starting our Global Impact Week today. That's our our missions conference here at Grace Bible Church. Uh, As was mentioned earlier this morning, our focus this year for the Global Impact Week is missions to postmodern Europe. Now, here at Grace Bible Church, we have three key initiatives, three parts of the world where we're, we're really focusing our efforts. Uh, one is Europe, one is uh, Communist East Asia, and one is Muslim. Those are our three key initiatives. Now, uh, let me ask you, of those three places, Europe, Communist East Asia, Muslim, uh, which do you think are the hardest, which do you think are the easiest? Most people think the easiest place to go for a missionary of those three is Europe. Europe's where you go for vacation. It's full of good food, pretty scenery, castles you can go visit. Europe is a, a great place to visit. It's a great place to go on vacation. But actually, it's an incredibly hard place for missions. Our missionaries in Europe, will meet a number of them next week. They're going to tell us how, how God has done amazing things through their ministry to Western Europe. But it has taken not just years, actually decades of incredibly hard work to have any spiritual fruit. The spiritual ground of Europe is incredibly hard. It's very hard for the gospel to go forth in Europe. And I want to show you, show you why that is. I want to share a video with you from one of our European partners, if you guys will cue, cue this up. This will help you understand why missions is so difficult in Europe. Let's call it a geography of belief. You're trying to cross a spiritual landscape. You know, find the answers to the big questions. Why are we here? Where are we going? How should we live? using just a map and a compass. Only you live in Western Europe. So that means your map doesn't have any roads on it because you aren't supposed to let your faith determine the course you follow. People who daily live out their faith run the risk of being officially labeled as belonging to a sect. And forget about landmarks. A landmark is something lasting and recognizable that you can use to find your way. But in Western Europe, it smacks of Christianity. It's considered a relic from the past. So no church, no Jesus, none of that Bible stuff. Been there, done that. Your map doesn't have any lines on it either. Lines are too black and white, and here in Western Europe, there are no absolutes. Clinging to a moral absolute, everyone knows that's the unpardonable sin. And forget the compass. True north, truth is a relative thing here. One person's north is as good as anybody's north. So what good is a compass? The geography of belief in Western Europe has no roads, no landmarks, no map, no compass. Now, go find your way. In Europe, there's no roads, no landmarks, no lines, no compass. That's a great description of a worldview we call postmodernism. Missions in Europe is incredibly difficult because it is saturated with the worldview of postmodernism. That's dominant in Europe, Uh, and and like all trends, what starts in Europe gradually makes its way to the United States, starting on the coast, working its way into the heartland, starting with the young, working its way up to the old. We are becoming a postmodern nation, just like the nations of Europe. Now, you may never have heard the term postmodernism, but I guarantee you that you, and especially your children, have been greatly influenced by the postmodern worldview. And postmodernism is a great challenge for the Christian faith. So this morning we're going to spend some time talking about postmodernism. And we're going to talk about how we as followers of Jesus Christ can engage a postmodern world with the gospel. 
how we can reach postmodern culture for Jesus Christ. We're going to still be in 1 Peter. You can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. That'll be our, our text this morning. But before we get there, we've, we've got to talk philosophy for a few minutes. We've got to understand the culture in which we live. So I'm going to start out by giving you a definition. What is a worldview? Postmodern worldview is just one of many possible worldviews that people hold. A worldview is a set of presuppositions or assumptions that govern how a person understands reality. Those assumptions make up a framework for understanding yourself and your world. Your worldview governs how you see yourself, how you see your world, how you see God, how you see good and evil. It governs everything. Now, I can promise you, even if you don't know what a worldview is, you have one. Every person has a worldview, and you use it every day. Every time you engage with your world, every time you relate to another person or relate to God, you're using your worldview. It shapes how you see reality. But for most of us, our worldview lies largely unquestioned. You never think about it. You don't gather with your friends over chicken wings and talk about worldviews. It stays in the back of your mind, unquestioned, unconscious, usually until you engage with someone of a different worldview, until you're challenged by someone of a different worldview, you never think about it. But everyone has a worldview. And for all of us, our worldviews begin with the question of authority. What will be your source of authority for determining truth and reality? Where will you go to discover truth? That's the the most fundamental question that any person has to answer. What's your source of truth? At the end of the day, where do you go to discover truth? That's the most important question you answer. It shapes your worldview. It actually shapes the whole way you live your life. Over the last 2,000 years here in the Western world, there's been three answers that have been given to the question of authority. First answer that's been given is revelation. Our source of authority is revelation, the words of God recorded in Scripture. For the majority of the last 2,000 years, the world has relied on, on Scripture, on the words of God recorded in the Old Testament and the New Testament to govern our reality, to determine truth. Now, in the church, people might disagree over the interpretation of a passage, but for centuries, everyone agreed that the Bible itself is our ultimate authority that it determines truth for us. That, that was the view of the entire Western world through the medieval ages, through the Renaissance, through the Reformation. But then something big happened in the 17th and 18th centuries. Something new burst on the scene in Western culture. We call it the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is a movement that replaces revelation as our authority with reason as our authority. The Enlightenment exalts reason or logic and the scientific method as as the guides to truth and reality. Now, none of those three things are inherently bad. Reason, logic, science, all of those are actually, I would say, gifts from God. He's the one who's given us reason and logic and the ability to do science. He, He gave them to us so that we can get to know him in his creation. Actually, some of the greatest scientists during the Enlightenment were Christians who understood that, that science can actually grow and develop our faith. But at some point, you're going to have to make a choice. When push comes to shove, what is your ultimate authority? Is it the words of God or is it human reason? And the Enlightenment said, well, it's reason. The Enlightenment elevated human reason. It gave it almost godlike powers. Reason is the ultimate judge, the ultimate determiner of all truth. God's revelation is only true in and so much as it agrees with human reasoning. One of the great philosophers of the Enlightenment, Rene Descartes, said, We ought never to allow ourselves to be persuaded of the truth of anything unless on the evidence of our reason. So, human reason is the ultimate judge of all reality. 
As the Enlightenment progressed, more and more of the traditional beliefs of Christianity began to be questioned by the discoveries of, of science and philosophy. And when Christian beliefs came up against science or philosophy, which one wins? Well, most Enlightenment thinkers didn't try to put them together, didn't try to see how they could both fit together. They simply rejected Christian beliefs. So as the Enlightenment progressed, more and more Christian beliefs were simply rejected because they didn't seem to line up with reason and logic. First to go is what? Well, first to go always is the Trinity. God is three. God is one. That's illogical. How can you be three and one at the same time? So we jettison the Trinity. What's next on the list? Miracles. We can't reproduce them in the science lab, so miracles are, are out the door. That leaves you with a religion called deism, very popular back a couple hundred years ago. Deism says that God is a, a great watchmaker. He made the universe, wound it up, and then left it to run on natural laws. But that wasn't far enough for some people. Some people just decided Christianity smacks of superstition. Let's get rid of all of it. Get rid of all Christian beliefs. Let's exalt human reason. That leaves you with materialism or naturalism. The material world is all that is. Leaves you with humanism, that man is the measure of all things. Human beings are their own gods. And it leaves you with atheism. There is no God. This is all that is. Now, that worship of human reason and of science, that was nearly universal for, for a couple hundred years until two major, three major events happened at the beginning of the last century. Two world wars, the Holocaust, and the threat of nuclear Armageddon. All of a sudden, the world wised up and realized, wait a minute, reason and science don't always make life better. In fact, they can actually be tools for domination and mass murder. Maybe reason isn't such a good thing after all. So if we can't rely on God's revelation to give us truth, and if we can't rely on man's reason to give us truth, then what are we left with? Experience. And that's postmodernism. My source of authority, my guide to determining the realities of life is my own experience. Postmodernism is inherently skeptical. It's a cynical view of the world. I can't find absolute truth through revelation. I can't find absolute truth through reason. So I simply give up trying. Postmodernism is all about relativism. Your truth is whatever you experience to be truth. Your truth in your life is based on what you feel is true. It's all based on your experience. Postmodern playwright Harold Pinter put it this way. There are no hard distinctions between what is real and what is unreal nor between what is true and what is false. A thing is not necessarily either true or false. It can be both true and false. That's postmodernism. There's no absolute truth, nothing to discover through revelation or reason. It's all about your feelings and your experience. Reminds me of a street sign on Texas A&M campus. You may have seen this one. It's at the intersection of Bissell. <laughs> only left, only right. That's a perfect illustration of postmodernism. So according to this sign, as I'm driving my car down Bazell, I must turn both left and right at the same time. <laughs> only left and only right. That's postmodernism. Left and right, true and false. It's all up to you. It's all based on your experience. Truth is whatever you decide truth to be. Postmodern philosopher John Paul Sartre put it this way. It's up to you to give life a meaning. And value is nothing but the meaning that you choose. There's no transcendent meaning to life. There's no overarching story to discover. Meaning, value in life is whatever you determine. Go experience life. Experience lots of things. And whatever you find, that is what's truth for you. Truth is based on experience. Well, not just any truth, but religious truth as well. 
great postmodernist Johnny Depp was interviewed during the filming of Pirates of the Caribbean, and they asked him, how did you develop your acting style? And he put it this way. It's a lot like religion. You pick and choose what works for you. That's postmodernism. You pick and choose what works for you. There is no transcendent, absolute, authoritative religious truth. No, religious truth is, is whatever you decide it is. You go try a lot of things. According to Johnny Depp, you go try a lot of different religious beliefs, a lot of different religious practices. Whatever works for you, you keep that and you reject the rest. Now, it may be that the stuff that you're keeping is from different religions that seem on the surface to contradict one another. That doesn't matter. All that matters is that it works for you. It's all based on your experiences and your feelings. Now, chances are what works best for you is probably not what works best for me. So we're probably going to have different religious systems, but mine is no more valid than yours because yours works for you, mine works for me, so they're equally valid. In postmodernism, all religious beliefs are equally valid. It's all based on what works for you. It's all based on experience. We call that pluralism. All religions are equally valid. All religious beliefs are equally true. With one exception, there's one religious belief that you must not hold in a postmodern society, and that's the belief in exclusivity. If you believe that your religion is true and other people's are not, that's, that's offensive. That's oppressive. That's discriminatory. That's bigoted and closed-minded. You can believe that you have a truth, but you must not believe that you have the truth. This is where Christianity rubs up against postmodernism. This is why we are targets of ridicule and abuse in our society, because we take it seriously when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That is an incredibly offensive statement in the ears of a postmodern person. They hate it when Peter says things like, there is salvation in no one else but Jesus, for there is no other name than his under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And postmodernism, this is morally repugnant, that we would say that we alone have the truth, other religions are not true. They cannot accept that idea. We talked last week about how living in a hostile world, persecution and ridicule are inevitable. We are going to be persecuted for our faith. We are going to be ridiculed for our beliefs. Well, for us living in a postmodern society, probably the reason for us being ridiculed is going to be this belief. We believe that we alone are correct. That's, that's going to bring ridicule and abuse. We believe that, that Jesus is the only way to God. We believe that the Bible is the only word of God. We believe that the moral absolutes revealed in Scripture are the only way to please God. We believe our religion is correct and other people's are not. That's going to bring persecution. That's going to bring ridicule. That's an incredibly offensive and unpopular belief in our society. Timothy Keller put together a great book called The Reason for God. And and in this book, he did a survey of 20-something New Yorkers, just your average New Yorker, and what they viewed of the Christian faith. And I think this guy, this particular person, really summed up our culture's animosity towards the Christian faith. He says, religious exclusivity is not just narrow, it is dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. This is what they hate about our beliefs. 
I was reading uh, Time Magazine, popular columnist in Time Magazine, is a guy named Joe Klein. Saw a column that he put together where he listed out things that prove that you are a right-wing extremist. And one of the things he listed is that you believe that there are inferior religions. If you believe that your religion is superior to someone else's, if you believe that you have the truth and someone else doesn't, that makes you a right-wing extremist in his view. Well, that is the predominant view of Europe. That is why missions is so difficult in Europe, because we're labeled right-wing extremists. They can't stand the thought that we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. That's the dominant view in Europe, and it's the growing view in the United States. This is why we're going to face persecution and ridicule for our faith, because we believe that Jesus is the only way. So that's the world we live in. It's it's growing to become more and more like that, more and more postmodernism. So how do we respond? How do we respond in a postmodern culture? How do we help them to see the beauty and truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, that's what we want to talk about this morning. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter's going to help us to learn how do we respond to a hostile culture. Now, Peter was not writing to a postmodern culture, but his advice here is timeless. He tells us how to respond at any time to the hostility we face in this world because of our faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to look with me starting in verse 14 of chapter 3. Peter says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. In these three verses, Peter gives us four steps to responding to a hostile world. Four steps that really help us know how to respond to a postmodern society. Step number one in our response is that we need to revere Christ, not man. Peter puts together a contrast there at the end of verse 14, beginning of verse 15. He starts out, do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Do not fear society. Do not be troubled or shaken up when they, when they ridicule you. When, when we face ridicule, we're tempted to ask, have I made the right choice? Am I right believing this incredibly offensive thing that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Am I right? Well, Peter's saying, yes, you are. You are right in your beliefs and their persecution, their ridicule actually proves it. We talked about that last week. Persecution for our beliefs is actually a blessing in disguise from God. Because when we share the sufferings of Christ in this life, it proves that in the future we will share the victory of Christ. When you suffer now, it proves that you will be vindicated later. So when you suffer from this world, when you're ridiculed, when you're made fun of, don't let that shake you up. No, that's proof. You're right. They're wrong. That's proof that in the end you will share in the victory of Jesus Christ. So don't be afraid of what man can do to us. Instead, revere Jesus Christ. Peter says to sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Sanctify means to set apart or revere someone. We're to set apart Jesus as Lord in our hearts. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, whether we recognize it or not. But Peter's challenging us. Recognize that he is your Lord. That he is Lord over everything you know, over everything you believe, over everything that you do. Now, This directly contradicts postmodernism. In postmodernism, what is my authority? It's my experiences. It's my feelings. That's what determines truth for me. In Christianity, what's my authority? Jesus Christ. He's my Lord. He determines truth. What is true is what Jesus says is true, not what I feel is true. 
So Peter's first advice to us is living in a postmodern society, don't drink the postmodern Kool-Aid. Don't buy into their lie. Don't buy in to their teaching that truth is relative, that truth is whatever you feel or experience it to be. Now, that's going to be a challenge for us because our culture is buying the lie of postmodernism, swallowing it hook, line, and sinker, especially among the young. It is just assumed that truth and morality are relative things that each person determines for themselves. What's sad to see is how many Christians are buying into that lie as well. In 2008, Pew Research did a survey of American Christians and found that 52% of American Christians believed that many religions led to eternal life. But what did, what did we just read that Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But wait a minute, that's offensive. That doesn't feel right. That feels repugnant. So we simply abandon that belief. Well, that's postmodernism. So many Christians go with their feelings rather than with Christ as Lord. And so for the challenge for us, the challenge for us this morning is who's going to be Lord of our lives? Who's going to be Lord of our beliefs and our practices? Will we recognize that Jesus is Lord, that he determines what we believe and what we do, not our feelings, not our experiences? In my own life, I, I wrestled with this when I was in college. I was a junior here at A&M, and, and the particular thing for me that I really wrestled with was the teaching of predestination. I hated the idea of predestination. The thought that God chooses particular people for salvation and passes over other people, that was repugnant to me. That felt wrong. I'm a good American. I was raised on the virtues of democracy and individual responsibility. That just chafed against the idea of predestination. So I wrestled. And and in the end, it came down to this question. What is going to be my basis of authority in life? Where am I going to go for truth? Is it my feelings or is it Christ's word? At the end of the day, I I chose to go with Christ. I'm not the most reliable judge of anything, so I'm going to go with him. That's the choice that we all face. In our lives, will we allow Christ and his word to be our ultimate authority? Will we revere him as Lord and King of our lives and resist the lie of postmodernism? That's the first step. Don't buy into their lie. Continue to promote Christ as Lord of your life, of your beliefs, of all that you do. That's step number one Peter has for us in engaging a postmodern culture. Step number two says, prepare to share your hope. Verse 15 says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. That word defense in Greek, it pictures a courtroom. So Peter is picturing that these Christians are brought into a courtroom and they are questioned and accused and he wants them to make a defense, to be ready to explain something. And specifically, they need to be able to make a defense of their hope. And we've talked a lot about hope. Peter has a ton to say about hope in this book. Remember, hope in the Bible doesn't mean what the English word hope means. Biblical hope is not a wish or a desire for something that might or might not come true. Biblical hope is a confident assurance that God will fulfill his promises. So Peter's talking about, he wants us to be ready to make a defense, an explanation for the confidence that we have that God is going to fulfill his promises, take care of us, save us, deliver us, give us eternal life. Living in a postmodern world, we live in a world that is full of economic turmoil and terrorism and uncertainty. In other words, a world that is really short on something called hope. Genuine, confident hope, that is incredibly rare in this world. So when you live out a life full of hope, full of confidence in the future, full of peace, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, people are going to notice that. 
That's going to turn heads and people are going to ask you, how can you be so confident in these difficult times? How can you have hope in the midst of this? Peter wants to make sure that when someone asks you that, which they will, that you're ready to give an answer. That you're ready to explain the basis for our hope. Where our hope is, is based on the gospel. The good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's what all of our hope is about. So, so the first part of applying this particular step is that we each need to make sure that we have mastered the gospel. That we have mastered how to share the good news of what Jesus has done for us that gives us confident hope in the future. Now, just to review, we've kind of run through a lot of what Peter says about the gospel, the facts of what Jesus has done for us. I just want to review them for for just a moment. The first fact that Peter revealed to us back in chapter 1, verse 3, is that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. Jesus is God. He has come to earth in human flesh. He came to earth and lived a sinless life. Peter talks about that multiple times back in chapter 2 of Jesus who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He never sinned. He's the one and only human being to live a perfectly righteous life and yet he chose to die for our sins. That's point number three. He died for us. Look at chapter 3 verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. He deserved nothing but praise, but he freely chose to die as a sacrifice for our sins. The just became unjust. He took all of our sins upon himself and died as a sacrifice for us. But death wasn't the end of Jesus' story. He rose victorious from the dead. We talked about that at length last week. The resurrection was Jesus' moment of victory over sin and death and Satan. He proved them all wrong by rising victorious from the dead. And his death and resurrection has brought us life. Peter talks about this idea of life using multiple words back in chapter 1, regeneration. We were born spiritually dead, but now we are spiritually alive. Also back in chapter 1, redemption. We were born slaves of sin, under the penalty of sin. But Jesus has redeemed us, freed us from sin through his death and resurrection. And here in chapter 3, verse 18, the, word that, or the verse that we just read, he died so that he might bring us to God so that we can have an eternal relationship with God. Jesus offers all of that to us as a free gift. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus, who is God's son, came to earth to live a sinless life and then to die as a sacrifice for our sins. He rose from the dead victorious, and now he gives all of us as a free gift eternal life. Those are the truths of the gospel. You need to be ready to share those truths at a moment's notice. You need to know them cold. You need to know them so well that if someone stops you on a bus on the way to school and they're asking you about your hope, you can immediately rattle off the gospel. You know it cold. You know it in your sleep. I encourage you, make sure that you know the gospel. We have a lot of this stuff on the website if you want to study it there, if you want to talk about it more. I'd love the chance to talk through the gospel with you and help you to understand the different points of it and really know it. You need to know it well so that you can share it. The second thing that I think Peter would want us to master, though, is our story. We live in a postmodern world, and I've said a lot of negative things about postmodernism this morning, but there's a few good things about postmodernism. One of the good things is... They love a good story. If truth is all about what you experience and they want to hear what you have experienced, they want to hear your experiences. They want to hear your story. They value it. And so we need to be ready to share our story of coming to salvation through faith in the gospel. You need to be ready to share your experience of encountering Jesus Christ in the gospel. For a lot of people living in our world, they will not listen to you share the gospel as simple truths but they will listen to you share your story. 
So be ready to share your story of coming to Jesus Christ through faith in the gospel. I encourage you, in particular, these are just some things that I found helpful. I encourage you, be ready to share your story of coming to believe the gospel in one minute and in three minutes. Those are kind of the most common uh, forms of my story that I get to share. The one-minute version is like on the bus to school or it's at the water cooler, coffee break, really quick, just boom. I get to share it really fast, one minute. Three-minute version, sometimes somebody wants to go to lunch, have a little bit more time to share it. So one-minute version, three-minute version. Be ready to share your story and make sure however you share it that you share the key truths of the gospel, what we just covered. Because remember, a lot of people aren't going to listen to you share the gospel, but they'll listen to your story. So make sure you walk them through belief in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a big idea. So if you're not ready to share your story, if somebody stopped you on the way to work this week and asked you, how do you have such hope? How do you have such confidence? If you couldn't share your story, I want to encourage you, go home this afternoon, spend some time this afternoon or this week, and just write it out. Talking maybe one page. Write out your story of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. How did that happen? What did God do in your life to bring you to faith in the gospel? So be ready to share. We are really the only people who have confident hope in this world. We believe in the one and only source of hope. So we're going to get questions. People are going to ask us how we have confidence. Be ready to give them an answer. That's step number two. Step number three Peter has for us is convey humility and respect. Look at the end of verse 15. Be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. When you have an opportunity to share the gospel, or when you have an opportunity to share your story of coming to faith in Jesus Christ, make sure you share it out of an attitude that is humble and respectful. That's the meaning of the words that Peter uses. When he uses the word gentle, that's, that's the word humble in Greek. It means that you don't think too highly of yourself. It means that you put the needs of the other person, the person that you're talking to, above your own needs. Um, when, when the person you're talking to, when, when they attack you, when they persecute you, when they ridicule you, you don't retaliate. You give them nothing but love, nothing but service. That's humility. You put their needs above your own. You don't fight back. You don't retaliate. You're not seeking to shame them. You're not seeking to win the argument. You're following the example of Jesus Christ. If you look at chapter 2, verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. When Jesus was facing a hostile audience, he didn't fight back. He was humble. He sacrificed his rights to serve them. Be a humble person. As you share your faith, be humble in your interactions with unbelievers. And then Peter adds to humility this idea of reverence. That word means respect. It means that you treat people with consideration and thoughtfulness as you interact with them. Now let me illustrate that by giving you pretty much the farthest away example I can think of, the most opposite thing to treating someone with respect. About six weeks ago, two months ago, there was all that big controversy over the church in Florida planning to burn the Quran. Well, to a Muslim person, burning the Quran is about the most disrespectful thing you could possibly do. Let me ask you, what is our goal for those of the Muslim faith? Our goal is that they become followers of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? By hearing and believing the gospel. Well, I can pretty much guarantee you, you go burn the Quran, you're never going to get a chance to share the gospel with them. Their ears are going to be closed. They're never going to give you the time of day. That's a horrible idea. Don't go burn the Quran. Instead, treat them with respect so that you get an opportunity to share the gospel because that's the only thing that matters is that we get to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. It is essential in our interactions with this postmodern world that we treat everyone with humility and respect. 
Whether they deserve it or not, always humility and respect. For me, my, my best example of that in my own life is actually my dad. My dad has been an engineer and then a manager and now a business owner. And, and in every position that my dad has had, he has always treated the people who've worked for him or with him with humility and respect. Even guys who really didn't deserve it, even really immoral guys, even really hostile guys. My dad worked for a couple decades in the oil industry and a lot of immoral things going on in the oil industry in those days, lots of immoral people. And yet my dad never judged them. He never sat over them and condemned them. Instead, he loved them. He respected them. He was humble towards them. And that humility and respect earned him untold opportunities to share the gospel. So my dad was always doing just sharing the gospel. And that continues today. There are non-Christian guys that worked for my dad years ago that still call my dad up on the phone because they love talking to him. They want his advice. They want his ideas. And every time he just gets to share a little bit more of the gospel, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. He always treats people with humility and respect, and that opens the door wide for him to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how we should be interacting with the world. That opens the door to the gospel. And then step number four, this is how we prove the gospel to a postmodern world. We prove our hope with our lives. That's what Peter says in verse 16. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Peter's challenging us, keep a good conscience. That means that as far as you know of, there's no sin that you need to confess. You're not walking in sin in any area of your life. You, you have a good conscience by, as you'll see later in the verse, by, by maintaining good behavior. Good behavior, that actually takes us back. If you guys remember, that's really the big idea of the book of 1 Peter, that we would be the people who live out good conduct, good lives, beautiful behavior in the sight of the watching world. Peter has a lot to say about that. He wants us to understand you prove the truth of your beliefs by living a beautiful life, a life full of good and godly conduct in the sight of the watching world. Now, that's particularly important in a postmodern society. Remember, they they don't value revelation and they don't value reason. What do they value? Experience. What they need to see is that your faith works in your life. They actually need to see that our faith works better in our lives than any other people's faith does. So the worst thing you can do in a postmodern society is commit hypocrisy. You go out and and commit sin and and you short circuit the gospel. People see, well, no matter what he says, it's not working in his life because he's still still going out and sinning. He's still selfish. He's still uh, a prideful guy. If if you go out and commit sin and they see that, it totally destroys your witness because they're looking for your experience. Does your faith work in your life? Prove the truth of the gospel by the way you live. Prove the truth of the gospel by being a remarkably loving, godly person, not just for a week, not just for a year, but for decades. Remember what they said earlier this morning when they were talking about missions in Italy. On average, it takes seven years for an Italian to accept the gospel. Why? Because they need a long period of time to look and see if your faith really works in your life. Take seven years of close relationship for them to be convinced. Yeah, that gospel thing works. Okay, I'll listen. We prove the truth of our beliefs by living it out in our behavior. All right, so Peter has given us four steps this morning for how we respond to our postmodern hostile culture. My my application for you this morning is just to look over these and spend some time prayerfully considering where are you weak here? Where is your weakness on this list? Number one, revering Christ, not man. Is Christ Lord of your life? Is he Lord of all of your beliefs? Do you determine truth by going to God's word or do you determine truth by what feels right, by, by what feels okay? 
If it's the latter, if you've been determining truth by what feels right, I encourage you, uh, spend some time in the word, spend some time in prayer, spend some time turning your life over to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is our authority. Don't buy into the lie of postmodernism. Prepare to share your hope. If you're not ready to share the gospel or your story, spend some time working on that today and this week. Convey humility and respect. I encourage you, if there's a a person in your life who's not a believer and and maybe you have treated them poorly, or maybe they've treated you really poorly and so you've retaliated some, I encourage you to go to that person this week. It's going to be hard, but I encourage you, go to them this week and and confess that. Ask their forgiveness for, for, for retaliating. Ask their forgiveness for being hard on them. Instead, start to treat them with love and respect and humility. As you begin to invest in that relationship and show love to them, even when they show hate to you, over time, they will listen. Over time, you'll get an opportunity to share the gospel with them. And finally, prove your hope with your life. Are you living a life that is consistent with the truths of the gospel? Are you living a life as an authentic follower of Jesus Christ? That's what will prove the truth of your beliefs to the world. So spend some time looking at this list and praying for God to help you to see where you need to grow as you seek to be a witness to a postmodern world. Now, finally, I want to leave you with a few announcements. Just review some of the things going on this week as part of our missions conference. First, especially for you college students, Breakaway this Tuesday is the Go Conference. It's at Central Baptist Church, Tuesday night, 6.30 p.m. Awesome opportunity to hear more about what God is doing in the world through missions. Then here at Grace Bible Church, we have a breakfast on Thursday at 6.45 a.m. over at the Anderson campus. We're talking about postmodern Europe and how missions works over there. Third, European dessert, European vacation dessert, I think is a full title. Going on Friday night, Anderson Campus, 7 p.m., really fun, lots of good food, so you should come for that, and we'll hear from a lot of our missionaries over in Europe and hear what God is doing. And finally, next Sunday, this one's really significant, next Sunday after this service at, at, at 1230, Uh, If you're interested in going on a short-term mission project, which I hope many of you are, just go over to Anderson, free lunch, food's provided, and you're going to find out about opportunities we have for you to go overseas for a few weeks or even six or seven weeks this summer. So please uh, take advantage of these opportunities that we have to engage in missions here at Grace Bible Church. Now let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this week. Thank you so much for this opportunity for us to remember what you're doing all around the world. Uh, we lift up in particular our missionaries in Europe, Lord. Uh, we, we confess that uh, often we don't think about them. We often don't think about the struggles that they face and the discouragements and the setbacks. Lord, we pray that you would encourage them. We pray that this week that you would really refresh them and strengthen them. We pray that you would uh, rekindle their, their passion and their vision for Europe. And we pray, Lord, that you would give them great victories, great successes. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would give them opportunities to share the gospel uh, with Europeans. And we pray that through your spirit that you would do mighty things. Lord, we pray that you would turn the tide of postmodernism in Europe, that you would uh, launch a revival of your people, that you would launch an incredible growth of your church over there. We pray, Father, that you would do amazing things in the years to come for your gospel in Europe. And we pray right here in the United States, Lord, as we face um, a growth of postmodernism. Lord, I pray that we, as your people, as your congregation here on earth, Lord, I pray that we would be a source of light and hope to this world. I pray that we would not retaliate, that we would not grow angry when they attack us, that instead, in a spirit of humility and respect, that we would share our hope, that we would share our hope in Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, help us to be sharing the gospel. Help us to be ready to do that. Lord, I pray that in every way that our lives would glorify and honor you. I pray that you'd fill us with your spirit and give us opportunities to share the gospel this week, Lord, for each of us. In the name of your son, Jesus, who we pray would be glorified through our lives. Amen.
All right, God bless you guys. See you next week.